You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Well, hello, Gata. Hi. How are you, Mike? I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your show. Gata, for those that haven't come across you online, tell our listeners your name and tell us kind of why we're talking today. Okay, so my name is Gada Abdallah. I'm a former pharmacy owner. I owned three pharmacies in the greater Detroit area. I sold all my pharmacies. One of them is still operating as an independent. And um, I currently uh, work in the arena of uh, mental health and addiction. And that's my passion right now, my mission. It would almost seem to me that somebody who owned three pharmacies is not only working in mental health, but you could actually be a patient in mental health from the stress and anxiety. You're 100% right, Mike. And you know... Seriously. (laughs) It is very stressful to own one pharmacy, let alone three. Um, It's a lot of work. And what you often find is that we don't have a work-life balance. And so that did happen to me. I did experience that. And once I sold my pharmacy... I didn't really have any hobbies to turn back on. Like, you know, I kind of was like, what should I do? We did some traveling, um, my family and I, and I have four kids, so it was easy to do that. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. But then, um, yeah, definitely I'm learning after I've sold my pharmacies to have more balance in my life. I myself over the years have had anxiety, which then leads to depression because you wake up every day and you say, oh my gosh, I'm anxious again about this. You know, it seems to not go away. Well, first of all, I think you don't really appreciate human beings until you realize that all of us are mentally ill, just at different degrees. You know, we're mentally ill, but we're able to cope. Secondly is, it seems like humans are like a raft or a beach ball where if you get enough stress in someone, enough anxiety, something's going to go. It's either going to go with anxiety, depression, bipolar and all that. It's like a lot of those are boiling under the surface sometimes and they're just ready to break that seam. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And then, you know, it's 2020 right now. And I think at this point in history, it's harder to find people with who are balanced in terms of have a healthy mental uh, health, uh, you know, like a landscape. It's really difficult to find people who are really in tune with um, themselves, their bodies, their mind and all those things. And so I have been exploring that a lot more since I've uh, sold my pharmacies. And being in the mental health field, I'm on the board of a mental health uh, authority down here in Detroit. Um, It's really opened my eyes to a lot of things, just attending conferences with all the social workers and the people who are into addiction. And what I've learned is social workers are probably the nicest, best people in the world, right next to pharmacists. You know, oh, I, lo- course, I love pharmacists. Yes. I think we're awesome. But then yeah. when I started to meet these social workers, I found how supportive they are and what we can do together, like a pharmacist and a social worker, put them together and they could probably solve the problems of the world because we just, you know, not the world, but at least for patients, we can sure. really help them out. When you talk about finding somebody who has it like all together, Would that be someone that you would say to them, okay, I'll be your friend now? Or is that someone who you say, all right, you're my guru or I'll read your book or something? Because I've been looking for someone sane for years and I haven't found one, it seems, because it seems like everybody's got an area that they've got some loose screws in it. What would be the goal of finding somebody that you think has everything balanced? You know, it's funny that you say that because um, 
for the longest time, I, you know, my, my husband and I, we have a lot of family, friends and relatives. And, you know, it's hard when everybody that you know is a pharmacist because everything that you do is pharmacy. And every, you know, for the past 10 to 12 years, I've been going to the, for example, this past weekend was the Michigan Pharmacists Association Conference. Um, I missed it this year. This was only the second year that I've missed. Mm. But everybody that I know is a pharmacist and we're all extremely stressed out. Yeah. We're all workaholics, right? Right. Um, everyone right. in my family is a professional, a lawyer, or a doctor, gotcha. or a pharmacist, right? So we don't have a lot of balance within my friends and family. But the funny thing is, once I sold my pharmacy and I allowed myself to be aware of my surroundings and the people right. around me, I did actually find a friend who was actually living just a few doors down and their kid goes to the same school as ours. We've become like best friends and they are the most balanced people that I know. And so it's just nice to spend time with people who seem to have things in common with you, but they just have it all together. We're talking relatively speaking here, compared to a crazy pharmacist, we're looking for someone who's balanced. Maybe not completely, but relatively speaking, they look like they're uh, Gandhi or someone, right? Absolutely. They just, uh, I found that my friends who are not in the pharmacy world or in one of the professions that I had mentioned seem to enjoy their lives more with their kids, do more activities, sports and stuff like that, um, spend time at home with their children. You know, it's just, I just found that they had, um, uh, they were kind of like the role models that I needed in my life at this time. And it was only because I had started doing some self-care techniques that I learned from the social workers that I've been surrounded by, which is, you know, establishing a really good morning routine, meditation, prayer, some type of affirmative um, reading, like an affirmation or something. Consistent exercise, that is the key. If I don't exercise, I'm totally out of whack. A healthy diet. And then once I had all those things in place, it's like um, my awareness just uh, came to these people who have been there all along, you know? Let me ask you this. We haven't talked at all about your three pharmacies and why you left those. If I could throw out the word mental health, mm -hmm. I have no idea right now why you sold your pharmacies. If I could bring up the word mental health, what percent of it was you trying to improve your mental health? Any of it? Was it all financial? It was money. Money. It was 100% money. <laughs> Which, of course, is no picnic when it comes to, if you're on the negative side, mental health. Correct. But was it money as far as you were making so much money you didn't know what to do with it and you were having trouble counting all of it? Don't I wish. So back in 2016 in Michigan, uh, Medicaid had announced um, some changes in the way that they were going to reimburse us pharmacists, right? Just for the listeners, I'm in Michigan too. So right. God and I are commiserating here. Yes, yes, definitely. I don't know if you remember this, Mike, you have your own pharmacy too. So yeah, yeah so back then they said, well, we're going to pay everyone cost plus 10. Yeah. And what did that do to my business? I had a I had a good chunk of business coming from the psychiatrist across the street. Right. We had also established a little niche um, servicing patients with um like an opioid addiction. Oh. And some of them, you know, I'll get maybe I'll get into this later during the podcast. But yeah, you know, we were doing Vivitrol injections. And a lot of them came, you know, with other types of injections that we were actually doing in the store. Um, and, you know, those were good margin scripts, all of our mental health scripts were, were very good money, you know. And so when Medicaid went to cost plus 10, that, you know, right there, I was like, I think I should analyze my data and see how this is going to affect us. 
Right. So, uh, you know, we don't have that much time during the day. Obviously, we're, you know, I didn't staff like 100%. I had staff pharmacists working and I would just fill in where needed. Yeah. um, When people needed a day off or something. But then I started finding like um, that the money coming in wasn't covering everything and I had to take some shifts away from my staff, you know? Yeah. And so then when Medicaid announced, uh, and that was due to the DIR fees and all these different things. With the damn DIRs, it's hard to put together if you're profitable or not because you have something coming out of your coffers seven months later. It's August and, and you have stuff coming out from February. And so it's hard to even- You don't know. Put any of those financials together. You're absolutely right. You could not predict what's going to happen with these DIR fees. And then they would send you a statement saying, okay, we're going to take, you know, this much, this many thousands of dollars on such and such date, and you really have no control. Yeah, because not only can you not predict the future, it's a weird terminology, but you can't even predict the past. Exactly. Well, you know, we started to get around that. My husband actually joined the pharmacy in 2009. I had opened the pharmacies in 2006, and he joined operations around 2009. And he's like a math whiz. He's great in chemistry Mm. and he's totally a math whiz. So he would be able to predict our net income after DIR fees just based on some calculations. He would do. Yeah. So he would say, well, no, we can't. He would just understand each prescription, how much we were going to get paid for it. And he's the one that really sounded the alarm bells because when I first started the pharmacy, you know, I was wearing every single hat. I mean, I opened right. it from scratch. And so then finally we got busy enough where I could take a half of a Wednesday off. And then finally I told my husband, listen, I can't do this. I need you to come in and help me out with that accounts payable, accounts receivable, everything. And then he started to do compounds and he was really handling the money side and I was doing a lot of the marketing. Anyway, so he started sounding the bells and I said, you know, I think my, I think my husband has a point. So let me go ahead and uh, look at the data. And we used um, SRS, which was our pharmacy um, software. Yeah. So I asked them to send me like a, my claims for the, for three months time, you know, my Medicaid claims, just so I could analyze what would happen. And then I put it into a spreadsheet and plugged in the new formula from Medicaid that we were going to be getting reimbursed on top of these crazy DIR fees. Right. And what I found was we were going to lose so much money based on this new reimbursement that I would have to let a technician go. Yeah. But the good thing was the tech, one of our techs was moving to Georgia. Mm. She moved to Atlanta that same month that the um, in April of 2017, I think it was. And so we didn't have to get rid of anyone, which was great. Yes. But still, it was... Um, it was harder without that other person there. Yeah, and right. I was there, you know, then I had to be at the pharmacy all the time, even with yeah. the staff pharmacist. So it became incredibly challenging. So, you know, I got to say that I, when I sold the pharmacy, I say maybe I guess it wasn't 100% money because it did become extremely stressful. Um, when we were, um, when we had the pharmacy, we'd come home, my husband and I, and then we'd, I'd tell my husband, you got to turn off. You can't talk about pharmacy after seven o'clock. Right. Right. But he would still talk about it, even when we were trying to go to sleep. And I'd be like, William, you can't, I'm trying to sleep and I can't, I have to get up in the morning. We can't keep talking about this stuff. The numbers are going to kill us, you know? Yeah, exactly. And so that's what finally when I did reach out to the big three chains, the Walgreens, CVS, and Rite Aid. Never heard back from Rite Aid. Walgreens was too far. And CVS got right back with us because... Um, at that point, when I sold my last one, I had sold my previous one a few years prior to that. And, you know, we were able to close within 30 days, you know. And so yeah. that's, and so that's, I kind of, I didn't really 
my when I sold my uh, first pharmacy in 2014, we we closed that one pretty quick because I was eight months pregnant. I couldn't handle it anymore. That pharmacy was just too small. Yeah, it wasn't profitable. It couldn't pay its bills. So it was paying its bills, but it was just breaking even. And so, sure, we decided to let that one go. Um, but then my my pharmacy in Gross Point that was my money maker um, in terms of we had a, a contract with um, some hospice agencies. Actually, mm. we had several contracts with several hospice agencies that really made us profitable. And um, because there's so much competition in the Detroit area and the metro De- metro right. Detroit in general just has a pharmacy on oh, like every corner, multiple pharmacies, right? Right. And um, you really have to stand out. And so I wasn't getting enough foot traffic. Gross Point Park is a really smart, small community, kind of like what you'd find in northern Michigan, smaller communities. Sure. Um, we'd get a lot of delivery business. So we started to advertise that we delivered. And we would deliver to... Um, areas of Detroit that were just, that had people who were in such poverty, they didn't have a car, they did not have a way to get to us. Um, And that's when I decided we're delivering. And um, I had a marketer at that time, like I had hired a marketer for a few months, and she got me one really good deal. And that's all I could afford to have her for, you know, but anyway, so she, she found this guy who was also a marketer at a hospice agency, and they started talking and they got me connected with the pharmacist that was um, d- handling their prescriptions. And then I, that's how I kind of got turned on to it. He was um, an older Italian gentleman who kind of taught me everything he knew about how to take care of hospice agencies because he was leaving the business. Mm. And so from there, we took on a big cancer center's hospice um, and we were delivering all over Metro Detroit. It was like a tri-county thing and even past that, like uh, Wayne, Macomb, and Oakland County, and even past that, we were delivering all these people's prescriptions as soon as they went on hospice, which is like, um, yeah. if you're fam- if pharmacists are listening, are familiar with hospice, you basically have to prepare a comfort pack, which includes morphine, the ultra concentrated one, the 20 milligram per ml, the 15 ml little bottle, and then a couple pills of Ativan and maybe some atropine, um, some other things that would take care of a a patient when they're in their final days. Mm -hmm. And so not only were we doing that, but this was a direct contract with the hospice agency. So there was no middleman. I created a contract and I Mm. set the rates. I said, this is how much we're going to get paid for each comfort pack. This is how much we're going to get paid for each delivery. And each agency had a kind of, they negotiated it differently, whether they paid delivery by per delivery or per how far we traveled and all these different things. But yeah. It worked out very well for us. Was any of that through like easy claim or was it all more like paper? You didn't set up the computer like billing like through a bin number and stuff. You just did it kind of manually. So when I first started back in doing hospice in 2011, I did it all manually because we only had one hospice agency and they had mm. 30 patients, right? Yeah. And so it was easy until I found myself at the pharmacy till one or two o'clock in the morning preparing an invoice that was an inch thick, right? Yeah, right. So I decided it's time to, um, you know, make this somehow automated. Right. Um, I turned to our computer, uh, the people who did our computer system, they really couldn't help us in that regard. So um, I went to a local PBM right down the street and they were able to set us up with a PBM. I mean, like a bin number, a group number, and we had control over it. Oh, neat. 
So I would be able to log into the system, add patients myself, and they were the ones who basically created the program, which um, would control like how the uh, uh, how they adjudicated. You know whether or not it would go through or not. That way, I wouldn't have to be at the pharmacy all day making sure that we don't dispense something that's not covered to a hospice patient. Did that improve your marketing at all? As far as you looked cooler because now you had like a card that you could give to nurses and patients and stuff. Did that improve that professional look on the other side at all or not? Because you're just dealing mainly with the nurses and things and the patients didn't see that stuff anyway. Correct. The patient never really did see those things. And so because um, typically... Uh, with a hospice patient, some, you're going to have them less than six months, and it doesn't make sense to generate cards and send them out. Yeah. So the uh, and we had a way to automatically give them a number based on you know some different parameters. So the nurses knew what their ID in our patient and our technicians knew, and the, the patient didn't have to really worry about it unless they were going to um, like a, a pharmacy close to their house if we couldn't deliver. But that gotcha. that rarely happened. We usually delivered all the time. Gotcha. Um, unless it was a nursing home, like our skilled nursing facility. Those at, In those cases, we did kind of farm those out mm-hmm. to the pharmacies that were servicing those facilities because we just didn't want any confusion with um, different types of packaging coming in, different labels, diff- two different pharmacies servicing a home doesn't make any sense. Yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. You had the hospice going. It was profitable. Yes. Then what? Going back to the hospice thing that you asked me if it made it like more um, attractive when we got the, the PBM. It made it more attractive to when I was marketing it to the hospice administrator, like the nurse administrator. Because I could go in there and demo to her the way that she could um, control her information. To maybe someone who wasn't your customer yet. Yes. I would, gotcha. I would be able to show her how she could generate reports from the pharmacy system that she had access to. Right. So each nurse would have access to go in there, add a patient, look at what they had, and then generate reports. Like there's quality reports that they have to generate. And just to clarify, these were new people you were trying to sell business to, or you were trying to go into the current nurses just to keep them happy and excited about your program both because you got to keep the nurses happy definitely oh the nurses were always so the nurses on the field loved us absolutely loved us because we were able to deliver so quickly to their patients we had Mm -hmm. at one point we had two drivers on staff plus a backup which was my husband um and this is going from you know when i first opened the store i was doing all the deliveries you know in the first year right yeah so right. anyway it really just grew and the nurses on the field really just loved us but then the nurse administrators wanted to see um some type of reporting that they could generate for their quality sure. assurance departments because they have requirements with medicare right so got it this is all going along does it still grow or is there a point where something clicked and you had to then leave that's an excellent question because I wasn't able to scale for a long time. We had just this one agency, and then we picked up another small agency in the Metro Detroit area, mostly in Wayne County and Oakland County. And it wasn't until I um, started talking about what I was doing with a, a potential partner who had multiple pharmacies across the state who would be able to help me scale this business model, right? And um, it actually came up because they had a hospice, uh, they had a 
somebody on their marketing end who was talking to a hospice agency or starting a hospice agency that they didn't know how to take care of their prescriptions without dealing with um, Enclara or whoever it was. And they didn't want to deal with Enclara because, you know, um, some of these larger mail order hospice uh, pharmacies, the pharmacy gets absolutely nothing out of it. They would do the, the same thing that I was doing, but then they would pay the pharmacy cost of the drug or maybe even negative and it would we were not even making money so this pharmacist right. out in the middle of michigan uh was having a problem with it but his partner was out here in detroit so he asked me what do you know about this and i said well i know a lot and i know how you guys can make money but we're gonna have to partner up on this because this is kind of my thing right and so we did partner up on it we picked up a farm uh, two pharmacies in flint and one in grand rapids and we were able to serve as hospice agencies for the whole area below that line in the lower part of Michigan, like if you just draw a line from yeah. Grand Rapids through Flint through Detroit. And we were really taking care of uh, a lot of patients at that time. What was your problem scaling? My problem scaling was um, getting to those nurses that make the decision as who are we going to use for our pharmacy provider. Most of them just go with the big name that they know, that big right name, but the Enclara or the hospice pharmacy or whoever it was. Yeah. So for them to trust a small pharmacy like us, that was kind of hard for them to do initially. But then when that relationship existed with these people in the middle of Michigan, they already had that relationship with this nurse. So then it became like, okay, we're just going to plug this model in for this pharmacy and see how it goes. And it worked out. And we all made, you know, we all kind of profited from that because it was my model, but it was their business. So if I'm up in Empire, Michigan or something, and I want to go to Joe's Friendly Tavern, everybody there knows Joe's. But if I'm down in, in the middle of Michigan and I have a choice between McDonald's or Joe's, I'm probably going to end up at McDonald's because I have no idea who Joe's is. And that's what you face, that people just, your local people, it was easier to get them because they have heard of you. But once you go away from your base, it's like nobody knows you from Adam and they're just going to go with someone they've heard of before. Where if you can then partner with somebody who has that local name, then you've repeated what you can do, but with a name that they're familiar with. That's absolutely, you got it. You nailed it. You absolutely got it. That's exactly what happened. Um, the other challenge was a lot of the um, consolidation that's happening in the healthcare industry was also happening in, in the hospice industry. So one of the accounts that I had, for example, that was based out of Livonia, Michigan, was acquired by a huge national account. Mm. And so once they became part of this larger company- Gotcha. We were not able to service them because they wanted to stick with the sure. big name that they had because yeah, right. they had agencies across the country, and I'm not in every single state, mm -hmm. you know. And so that's kind of that's kind of how you lose some of your business if you can't scale nationwide. Right. Um, yeah. Then it becomes extremely difficult. So, at what point then did that become enough? I did not stop that even until even after we sold our pharmacy, we I still had that business going. And um, we were, I sold my last pharmacy in Detroit around two, July of 2017. It was at the same time that my partners said, okay, we're going to pick up the Detroit business and fill some of it from uh, Flint. And then they had some partner pharmacies in Detroit area and they filled from there. And we also, because it's everything is just through the PBM. Yeah. And a lot of the patients were already in uh, skilled nursing homes or assisted living homes. It was easy to take care of the existing clients. 
So you closed your pharmacy, but you still had the license? No, I sold. I didn't need the pharmacy at that point because if I wasn't filling scripts, I didn't need the license or anything. We were farming those scripts out and still controlling the PBM side. You were one of the nasty PBMs. Almost. (laughs) But we did work closely with the pharmacist that had a lot of volume. So if there was a pharmacist, for example, out in Farmington, I think that's where he was located. And he called me up because I went to college with him. And he said, God, what are you doing with all this hospice stuff? How do I get into this? I told him, well, you know... What we can do is we could just give you a $5 dispensing fee. And I think, I can't remember exactly what it was. It was something around that because all his patients were in long-term care. So he had a set rate just for his pharmacy and they were able to program that in for him. And so, you know, we kind of just customized it to make it work for the pharmacies that we were using. Sure. Yeah. So that was great. I mean, that continued on and that didn't end until this hospice agency, the biggest account that we had ended up... um, expanding to like Virginia and maybe Louisiana and I don't know what state. So they expanded to like three different states all within a six month time period. And they needed to have pharmacy solutions in each and every one of their markets. And it had to be consistent. So in Michigan, they were using us and Virginia, they were using hospice, pharmacia, and then Louisiana, they were using a totally different company. And I told them, you guys, it doesn't make sense for you to use three different pharmacy companies. Just pick one and go with that. And they obviously had to choose a big company because we couldn't service them in all of those. The newer company they used might have been crappy service compared to you, let's say, but at least it's consistent crappy service that all the nurses know how to deal with and and they're only dealing with one phone number to the crappy service and all that kind of stuff, right? They had to they had to get it consistent. I think that's what they were looking for and also the reporting part of it was important. Which you could do, but they didn't need three different reports. Exactly. And so they did they did approach us to start servicing them in Virginia. But I had no time to fly out to Virginia and recruit a fire. I just really did not have time at that point because yeah. of how much we were being attacked by the DIR fees and the declining reimbursements. I just couldn't afford to go out to Virginia and spend, you know, I don't know, several weekends there or something recruiting a pharmacy to take care of our patients, these hospice patients. You know, that's what we planned on doing, but it just became a pipe dream. Okay. Define time for me because was it, you didn't have time. Why? Because you were spending time doing stuff back home or you didn't have time slash money? Both. So like I couldn't, I couldn't leave the pharmacy for a week. You'd be leaving that and you'd have to staff. Yeah. You'd have to staff it. Um, and then I'd have to have a strategy while I'm out in another state trying to recruit business. And I just couldn't wear that hat at that time. Yeah, you'd have to spend months. You could have a whole team designing how you wanted to present that to somebody. But at the time, you still had a pharmacy that you were staffing back at home. Precisely. We had multiple. I think at that time, we still had two pharmacies that we were taking care of. And hospice is a 24-hour business. Yeah, Yeah, you could get called in the middle of the night. And um, part of the, you know, what didn't appeal to pharmacists, especially independent pharmacists, was they didn't want to open the pharmacy at 12 o'clock at night when a patient was dying or being released from the hospital. Now, that doesn't happen very often if you have a very good relationship with the hospice. But it happens every once in a while, but you can charge for it, you know, a good hourly rate so that it makes it worth your time or 
or if you're out of town, you can have somebody cover you at midnights or whatever. And then just in case they get called, you can pay them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of pharmacists did not want to do that. So that's kind of how I had trouble uh, recruiting pharmacies, not only in the Detroit area, but I knew that I would have the same problem in another state. Yeah. Unlike the natural cycle of life of plants that die only in the fall, we humans seem to want to cross over at any time of the day or night. You can't predict it. So you had to have all the pharmacists that you go and say, hey, would you like to do this or that? Oh, by the way, you you have to be available at 3.15 in the morning or whatever. Exactly. And that was part of our guarantee. So part of our guarantee is we're going to be there for you 24 hours a day. Right. But we manage their patients so well. And the relationship with the nurses that we told them, anyone who's a new admit or you expect a new admission, give us a call and we'll get that comfort pack ready for you by 7 p.m. And you can just pick it up instead of calling us in the middle of the night. Yeah. Then you'd be dealing, though, with you know a pharmacist in Virginia that you might know, but you don't know who he has hired that evening. And then, you know, and, and now you're just out of touch with it. Exactly. And I can't guarantee what they do in Virginia. Right. So it kind of, Yeah. Not that I'm a perfectionist. I am a little bit. Every pharmacist is, in a sense, a perfectionist. But I couldn't control the outcome or the quality of uh, services that other pharmacies would deliver as opposed to what I'm doing in my store. Now, what I took away from this hospice was that when you're treating hospice patient, they're at the end of their life. These are end-of-life patients. They're terminally ill. And, you know, anyone in the, in the, in the geriatric world understands when someone has, like, a terminal diagnosis. And that kind of naturally um, allowed me to service patients with a substance use disorder kind of like in the same way, where you kind of wrap your arms around that patient and try to understand. You put your feet in their shoes, you know, because prior to getting into the hospice business, I had lost my grandma and my uncle within a, a very short time period. And um, our experience with the hospice nurses was not that great, you know, at the time in the back in when they passed away, like in uh, I can't remember what year that was. But anyway, so I wanted to create a different experience for our agencies that we were servicing and our patients that we were going to their house. And we actually became known and people would say, oh, Park Pharmacy is the pharmacy that you want to use, you know, and the nurses would tell each other. And that's kind of how we had some organic growth just by word of mouth from nurse to nurse when they would move agencies and stuff. But when that that kind of um, didn't grow as much as I'd like, um, when, you know, this whole opioid epidemic started, I mean, pharmacists, we were at the front line. And I challenged you to find a pharmacist who was working at a retail pharmacy who was not aware of what was going on, but just did not know what to do about it or how to handle this problem. Yeah, right. And, you know, I mean, just last week or a couple of weeks ago, they had that documentary on Netflix, that Dan Schneider pharmacist. Right. And, and you know what? We all were in his shoes. Some of us maybe were aware or not aware of what was going on. But, you know, um, what I would do, I would just go out there and talk to people. Just talk to the patient and try to understand what's going on. You know, why are you coming in for your early yeah. refill? Or, you know, just try to under, put yourself in their shoes and try to understand and it wasn't until like my cousin passed away from an overdose that uh, it really kind of shook me and woke me up and said, geez, you know, you're a pharmacist. Couldn't you have done anything to help your cousin? That's your cousin, you know, and you lost him. 
And at first, like when he first passed away, I kind of was, and I hate to say this, I'm ashamed to say this, but I was like, well, now his mother can actually uh, rest um, easier at night because he was just driving her nuts, you know? Yeah. Um, But my mother was like, you don't ever say that because no mother wants to see her son, you know, die for any reason. And, um, And it was just really difficult. Like overdose, was this like taking too many tablets or was it like doing something with the tablets like you know crushing and injecting that kind of stuff i can tell you exactly so um you know this is a typical story of somebody who got addicted to vicodin in the 90s and then um you know it was being sold on the street to kids who would take it for a headache or whatever and so i in high school a lot of kids were addicted to this to these pills well they thought they were safe and um Anyway, uh, but I don't know how, like, they would get them. I really don't know how my cousins would purchase these medications, who they would get them from. My parents kind of sheltered me and my sisters and my siblings from uh, a lot of them. So, but then I guess he went from pills to heroin at the time when it became uh, too expensive to get the pills. Because heroin's cheaper. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, it became cheaper. It became cheaper. And you got to think, he was about my age. He was about uh, 38 when he passed away. Um, so he had like a, maybe 25, I'm sorry. Yeah, he had. He was addicted since he was a teenager. So when he was younger, it was probably easier for him to get pills. But then it just became harder for them to get pills on the street. And I mean, this is well documented in documentaries and in books. There's a book called Dreamland that kind of goes through all this and it kind of, you know, it just really became easier for them to use heroin. And then the heroin in the Detroit area, at least, and and in many urban areas, was just contaminated with uh, fentanyl. And it was, you know, the coroner's report that came back, you know, revealed that his body was full of fentanyl, not really just maybe a small, tiny amount of heroin. Why do the drug pushers do that? Is it cheaper to put that in? or As a pharmacist, we know that fentanyl is measured in the microgram and the hydrocodone, I mean, the heroin and hydrocodone, those are milligrams, you know. So like just a small speck of fentanyl would be enough to get somebody high if that's what they were using it for. If I was a, a traveling salesman with that, I'd put in just like baking soda, but I guess they have to put something in it because they want repeat sales, right? So they can't just give them nothing. They have to put fentanyl or heroin in it because then the people won't be back to buy it the next time. It's got to be something. I think the fentanyl was coming in from China and it was cheap. uh, And it was just a small amount that you had to use as opposed to heroin, which was coming in from Mexico. Um, Yeah. And uh, you had to use a little, you had to obviously use more of it. And so, you know, and and in Detroit, you know, it's laced with everything. You know, the drugs that are sold on the street, they're just really contaminated with everything. So Yeah, you never know. Anyway, that's how he passed oh, away. I'm sorry to hear that. And, yeah. And, you know, it took me, like I said, it took me a little while. But then there were enough people in my community passing away from uh, drug overdoses that one day I was talking to a girlfriend of mine. And, and she was, you know, I was telling her how sad I was that I wasn't able to help my cousin who had passed away from a drug overdose. And she says, oh my gosh, my cousin also passed away from a drug overdose. And I feel the same way. And then we kind of started this uh, campaign in the area. 
And I'm a Muslim, and so was she. And so we started going to our area mosques and talking to um, some of the imams so that they could speak about addiction and drug abuse in their congregation and let parents know, like, this is not a moral failing. People become physically addicted to pills, and then when they can't get pills anymore, they turn to heroin. And your, your, your son or your daughter or whoever it is that has a drug problem needs help. It needs the help of, a like, a professional. And it's the clergy sometimes who are faced with these problems, but they're not equipped in any way to handle somebody with a drug addiction. It's not a moral choice at that point. It's an addiction. It's a physical addiction that has to be treated just like a medical, any type of medical disorder. I'm involved just because my first cousin's child did this. And it's across the state, across the country. It's everywhere. Definitely. And so we started to raise awareness. Um, and then as I was uh, attending all types of conferences and fairs across the state, there was a huge um, addiction rally, like a United to Face Addiction Michigan rally in Lansing. And I went, um, myself and several other pharmacists across the state, I don't know if you're aware of, Nancy Lewis was there no. from Oakland County, um, a bunch of people, and we had our own table for Wayne County Pharmacists Association. I'm very involved in a lot of different um, organizations. Anyway, I meet some wonderful people up there and a woman who was, um, she had several recovery homes on the east, in the east side of Detroit, which is just my neighborhood. And she said, I'm looking for a pharmacist who can help me get Vivitrol to the people who are living in my house because I don't allow Suboxone in my house. She, she wasn't a huge fan of Suboxone. Now, I myself, I kind of believe that there are multiple paths to recovery and whether you're using methadone, Suboxone, or Vivitrol, or Naltrexone, Whatever it is, or or just totally um, abstinent from all substances, you know, you will find recovery. It just has to be your own way, right? Yeah, right. So that was her way. She needed a pharmacist who could help her uh, get Vivitrol to these patients because so many people had issues with coverage or whatever. And most of her patients were on Michigan Medicaid. Yeah. And that was uh, before Michigan Medicaid had changed their reimbursement rates. So. I got in with the company uh, reps that were there, and then we met at my pharmacy, and then we started this program in which a patient with a diagnosed uh, opioid use disorder would see a physician, get screened for everything like hepatitis and all these other things, and then he would start detoxing them with Suboxone over the course of a however long they needed, a week, a month, whatever. And then they would start on Vivitrol, and we were the pharmacy injecting the Vivitrol. The doctor didn't want to have anything to do with the Vivitrol injection because it cost them too much to keep it in stock, and they didn't know if they were going to get paid and all. You know, there was all these questions. Yeah. And so we were actually administering that shot. And, I mean, we had a full vaccine clinic, too. We were doing flu shots and travel vaccines and everything prior to this. So it just came naturally for us to do this. Yeah. At the same time, we had the psychiatrists uh, sending us injections, like uh, some of those long-acting antipsychotics. We also started delivering to recovery homes, and all the work that we did started to catch people's attention, and we ended up being recognized by Crane's Detroit Business Magazine, and we were the uh, runner-up in a Healthcare Hero Award. And so that was great. I mean, it was we were recognized, but when the reimbursement model changed, we couldn't even pay for the Vivitrol with our reimbursement, let alone the pharmacist's time. I mean, it takes 10 minutes to just reconstitute that vial. Sure. And also, there's a lot of legwork that goes into uh, taking care of a population that 
is kind of harder to service because of their socioeconomic circumstances at the time that you get them. So most often people who are affected with addiction have really used up all their lifelines. Uh, their family sometimes doesn't want to deal with them because they've they've been burned so many times with them. For sure. So they have limited resources in terms of income. Transportation is always an issue. Um, even getting a cell phone number that we could call any number that we could reach them at was a challenge. So it was challenging to keep them coming in every month for their shot. But um, as long as they saw the doctor, the doctor would send us the script. And then we were able, and they were able to come in for that injection. We were doing that. Before I sold my pharmacy, I even considered going to the recovery homes and giving the shot there because all the patients were already there and we wouldn't have to bring them into the pharmacy. Um, that didn't quite work out um, because it was just... Um, it was hard to pay a pharmacist to go out there, and sometimes the patient would be there, sometimes they wouldn't. Yeah. And then when you when you get there, they tell you, oh, yeah, I just used heroin yesterday, but you're not supposed to have used heroin for like seven days before. Was there any trouble finding enough pharmacists that would want to go out and get to those neighborhoods and give shots to people who were addicted? No, definitely not. There's a lot of stigma attached to treating patients with addiction. Right. A lot of pharmacists did not want those types of people, I put that in quotation marks, they didn't want them in their store. Right. Um, a lot of doctors did not want to deal with that either because of... Um, just, you know, they thought that these pe these patients might relapse and want to be like pill shoppers or doctor shoppers or whatever. Yeah. So it was hard. And even within my own staff, like I had one person who kind of resisted doing it, one pharmacist. But then when I told him, you have to do this, it's part of your job, he was okay with it. But I have to say that servicing the patients with um, opioid use disorder was one of the most fulfilling things that we all did at my store. It was... Uh, my technicians, my pharmacists just absolutely had this feeling of we are really servicing the community. We know that we're not making a ton of money on this, but we're so happy to take care of these people. Right. So it really turned into a, a huge amount of goodwill for my employees. They, they loved working at Park Pharmacy because they knew that we were doing the right thing. They would never leave us, you know? Yeah, right. And in fact, when we sold the pharmacy, everybody was heartbroken. It was just, it was just really something that, what we were doing, we were just providing this hope to people, you know? From what I can see and from the history of your cousin and my first cousin once removed and so on and all the stories, this really makes its way across all different socioeconomic backgrounds and races, religions. It's across the board, period. And so when people are helping, it almost feels maybe like they're not helping those people, but it's helping everybody. Everybody. Because my experience with addiction was as a family member. You know, I was never, I'm not a recovered anything, but I am a family member of somebody who was um, addicted, multiple family members. And um, soon, you know, soon after I sold my pharmacy, I learned that I was a codependent, which is very common among families have who have somebody who's addicted. And that's something that I never even had heard of until sure. like I started talking to social workers and stuff. So my message to the community started to become, if you're a family member of someone with addiction, you have to take care of your own needs as well. Right. You know, you have needs that must be addressed and boundaries that must be set in order for you to have a fulfilling life and, you know, a decent mental health. Take me to, you sold your pharmacy. 
that was your last pharmacy? Yeah. Why did you sell that one? That was like two years ago. Yeah, that was only two years ago. So I opened three pharmacies. The first one was uh, 2006, and that was the one that I had for 11 years straight in Gross Point Park, okay, Park Pharmacy. It's funny because I opened up Park Pharmacy, and I didn't know that there was a Park Pharmacy in Gross Point Park uh, like, you know, 15 years before that. And then I ended up meeting uh, Gary Kidd, like he was the president of uh, Diplomat before he retired, before they went public, just before they went public. Yeah. Or maybe after. Yeah. He was there for a long time. Anyway, Gary's grandpa opened Park Pharmacy back in like the fifties, right? Oh, wow. And then he sold it to some guys. Um, and then they had several pharmacies in the area and then they sold it to some people and then ultimately it closed. And then I come along 15 years later and open a pharmacy in Gross Point Park and call it Park Pharmacy. We start to get phone calls from the neighborhood people. <laughs> like, oh, Park Pharmacy's back. I'm so glad to see that you guys are back. And we automatically yeah. start getting people walking in the door. I was like, well, this is wonderful. Sure. There's a loyalty to the small independents out here. But it started to get really bad, you know, with, you know, just the growth of specialty and everyone was shifting everything to mail order. Right. And Express Scripts and all these different Medcos and uh, CVS Caremark. Yeah. And it just got so difficult. So that's when I had to establish a niche business. But I also, somewhere along the way, a light went on in my brain that said, hey, if this is going to be sustainable or whatever, I need to open another location because I have so much inventory sitting on my shelf, you know? Right. And some of it, a lot of it gets expired and you lose it, right? Yeah, right. So let me open up another store. So we opened up a store in St. Clair Shores, which was about six miles away. And it was in a clinic. But, you know, we were able to share inventory, share people, like share some of our resources, the staffing and all that stuff, the driver, the delivery driver. So it just made more sense economically to have multiple stores. And then um, somewhere along the line, I opened up a third pharmacy. But this third pharmacy that I opened was with a partner. So I didn't own it 100%, but the other two I did. And then ultimately, that pharmacy I sold back to the partner. So I got out of that one. And then my other two, I sold um, one to CVS. It just wasn't making sense. So I sold that one. And then I kept my one store, the, my original store, until I sold it to CVS in 2017. Because, you know, they came with a really good offer. You know, when a chain comes with a good offer, regardless of who the chain is, they're not going to come again with that same offer. If you don't take that offer, and I've seen this happen to people, where they don't take that offer and they wait to see if they can get something better, inevitably it goes down. They know that you tried other options. They're the only option. And so they're not stupid. They'll say, well, (laughs) exactly. I'm going to cut another 10, 20% off of this or whatever. And yes. And then I know you'll take it, basically, because you're out of options. Right. You know, I didn't sit on it too long, but it did take me a while to finally decide to sell to CVS because this was my baby. This this pharmacy was like my original store. The day that we sold, I was just heartbroken. I was very sad. Um, the next day, I sat home, like, crying, and my husband's like, what's wrong with you? Just, I think you'll be fine if you open up the... Uh, bank app on your phone and take a look at the balance in our checking account or the savings account or whatever it was that CVS had deposited the money into. He said, that'll make you feel better, but it only makes you feel better for a short period of time, like maybe 10 minutes or something. And then you're like, yeah, but the relationships that I had with my patients, that's irreplaceable. And where am I ever going to find a job like that? Like that was the ideal job, you know? But the economics didn't make sense anymore at at that point when we sold. And so, you know, I felt like I really had no other choice. And, you know, they don't come knocking twice, like I said. 
And I talked to some, I had, obviously, I don't make these decisions lightly, so I talked to a lot of my mentors about it. Um, a lot of my mentors said, you know, had gone through the same thing, some of my pharmacy mentors. And they had sold their family pharmacy, and they said, you know, it opened up other doors for them. And my father is a businessman, and when I told him, Dad, you know, I'm thinking about selling the store, and he said, well, how much did they offer you? And when I told him, he said, well, what the heck are you waiting for, you know? And so I was like, okay, I guess if Dad is even telling me to do this, I might as well just go ahead. And, and that's when I, I did it. Um, it did open the door, you know, for me to dis rediscover myself and what I actually enjoyed other than pharmacy, um, to be get a balanced life. And when I, uh, that first year after selling, I went to, um, I wanted to get an MBA, but I didn't want to get like a real MBA, uh, and spend time in, uh, in school again with books and all that. And I didn't have a job that would actually, you know, maybe reimburse the tuition or anything. I kind of, and I didn't have a, a position where I could say, okay, I've got an MBA, now you guys can promote me. I was just a, you know, just a kind of like a freelancer. And so um, I ended up going to Wharton uh, School of Business. They have an executive education program, and it was just a one-week course. And it kind of helped me crystallize what I was doing right, what I was doing wrong, what I could have done better, you know, in my business, and take that to my next uh, journey, whatever that would be. And I also went to every single conference you can think of. Um, I went to AMCP, the Academy of Managed Care Pharmacy. I went to the PBMI. I went to a lot of addiction conferences, the National Heroin Summit, um, CADCA, which is a, a drug coalition conference. I just went, I can't even remember. I went to like 18 different cities all in one year and kind of learned what was going on across the industry. In the meantime, is money an issue to you at all? Are you saying, oh boy, I'm panicky because I can't do this? Or were you like, I've got some time to do this now? At that time, I had no worries in the world, not, not gotcha. a worry in the world. Gotcha. No, I, I was financially independent at that point. Gotcha. You know, we took many trips, uh, which were very enjoyable. Um, we invested a lot of the money into real estate because that's my original background. My dad's a real estate agent and I was his personal assistant from the time I was nine years old till I went to pharmacy school. So I know a lot about real estate. Um, so we did make some real estate investments and they are paying off, which is good. So it gives me some freedom to do what I want and explore. Sure. So you were exploring for a year. You went to all these conferences then. Yes. Then I come back and I said, okay, it's time for me to do something. Um, I said, what's the easiest thing I can do? Okay, I'll be a contingent pharmacist, right? So I applied to Beaumont, which has, uh, Beaumont Hospital has eight hospitals in the area. I became a contingent pharmacist there in the outpatient setting. On call, basically. They can fit you into the schedule. Maybe if somebody needs a day off or if somebody sure. has a funeral, maybe you can pick up that, that shift mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, so I've, I've been doing that since about 2018. Why'd you do that? To get back into the pharmacy. I was bored. I'd just sit on my ass if I could. Well, Mike, see, the problem is I was a workaholic. Yeah. And I couldn't get out of that mode for the longest time. You know, um, even after I sold my pharmacy that first year, I was I was still in work mode. So that's why I was going to all these conferences and I just could not sit still. I could not sit at home. And those were not giving you enough satisfaction. You didn't feel like you were producing something? Maybe. I wasn't creating anything. I'm very much somebody who needs to use their hands. You were kind of soaking stuff up yes. and you were busy, but you weren't being productive in your mind. Yes. And I wasn't able to get into that flow. 
Yeah. You know, when you're at work sometimes, and um, I don't know if, if you're staffing anymore, but some retail pharmacists, not maybe retail, but some pharmacists out there that are listening might understand what I'm talking about. You get into the pharmacy, you set everything up, and then you just get into the flow of what you're doing. And as right. long as you're fully staffed, which many pharmacies are not, but Beaumont is, and my pharmacy was, um, you could really get into the zone and make sure that you're doing the right thing for the patients. And it's kind of like, I hate to say like an assembly line, but that's kind of how it is at the pharmacy. You know, one prescription, then the next prescription and the next one. And you're really just doing your thing, you know? A guy named David Allen, he wrote a book called Getting Things Done. He's got a really cool TED Talk where he talks about one night he was out in a cove in a sailboat with his wife and the storm started coming up or the winds or something. And he was out there trying to get his boat from crashing on the rocks and so on. And he looked up at the moon and he said he felt so much peace because he knew in that instant, that short instant, that's what he was supposed to be doing at that time. And so I think that zone you talk about is... It's not going to give you peace forever, but in that moment, you know, in that hour or two hours, you know that is your spot in the universe, at least at that time, and there's some peace that goes along with that. That's exactly accurate. There's this momentary awareness, right, that you feel like this is exactly what I should be doing at this time. I have nowhere else to be, nothing else to do. This is what I'm doing, you know? Right. And it feels good because... You know, this is just for all those reasons. And so I enjoyed that for a time. Uh, then I realized um, that I was working all the vacations for people. And I said, <laughs> you know, I really would like to spend Fourth of July with my family and Christmas with my family. So then the following year, I kind of blocked those days off so I could spend more time with my family and kind of relax and take care of my mental health. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, during this time, because of all my activism, when I had the pharmacy, I was extremely active in terms of uh, the media knew about me. Channel 2, Fox 2 News down here, uh, one of their reporters would always call me every time something would happen sure. and come interview me, like when Narcan became available, yeah. uh, when a pharmacy was shut down because of too much dispensing of controlled substance in, in the Detroit um, area. I was the one getting called for those interviews, and that was because I had a pharmacy. He could pull his, you know, reporter van, you know, his TV van right up to my store, set up his camera, come inside, talk to me. It was easy. And yeah. um, I had, you know, I was interviewed by somebody from the Detroit News at that time as well. All of that kind of went away after I sold my pharmacy. Why do you think that went away? I didn't have my store anymore. Is that the only reason? I don't know. Being a pharmacy owner is uh, kind of like being a rock star. Well, I know that because I get a lot of, my wife doesn't like it, but I get a lot of women lining up outside the pharmacy at night wanting me to sign their body parts and stuff. So I understand the whole rock star thing. And I think about that because someday I may not be here. And when I get called by the news, I often say I'm the host of the Business of Pharmacy podcast, kind of for that reason, almost to make like a shift. What is the percent chance that you're doing something on your own versus getting a paycheck from somebody? I've considered that. Let's say a year from now. So I've considered going out on my own and starting a business. Um, I've thought about opening another pharmacy, but then I immediately say, no, I don't want to do that again. <laughs> but then you woke up from your, from your nightmare. Exactly. It's like, no, no, I can't go back to that. 
Um, uh, you know, I've talked about maybe partnering up with other people and coming up with solutions, whether it's in the mental health field or some other thing. But right now, I don't really have any, you know, any which way to go. I think I would rather at this point find a job at a company, like a paycheck type of thing, um, where I have, uh, you know, I know how many hours I'm going to be working. And it's a company that aligns with my philosophy of helping people. And preferably, I want it to be in the mental health field and preferably in addiction-related um, type of something. And I've been looking at companies, um, which I'm going to submit my resume to and all that. But it's like, um, that's kind of where I see me finding balance. Because if I were to open another business at this time, you know that having your own business means working, it, you know, 50, 60 hours a right. week sometimes or more, right? I mean, especially if you're going to start something from scratch, then I'll lose my self-care time. I won't be able to exercise as much as I do now. I might lose quality time with my kids in the morning or at night, you know, because yeah. I'm going to be up late at night working. I don't want to do that. I want I can't go back to that right now. I can't go because I've, I've lived that already and I need, I need to keep my balance, you know? I, so I'm trying to uh, kind of treat my me time and my family time as absolutely sacred. Yeah. But when the time comes along and the opportunity arises where it's something that I feel like I can really bring value, then I might consider it. But I was always, you know, recently I've been looking into some of these uh, venture capitalist backed companies. A lot of them are happening in Ann Arbor, a few in Detroit, um, a ton in California, as you know, Silicon Valley type stuff. Um, but, you know, other states as well have uh, markets in which venture capitalist type firms or equity firms or whatever you want to call them are backing business, you know, ID, business models and putting their money behind you if you have a good track record and the right people. So maybe one day I'll do that or I could just join a startup, you know, and just bring the value that I have to that company and ride that wave for a little time and or as long as, you know, I can. I, I just really don't know where I'm going to end up. And I, I would love to, uh, you know, I, I wish I could, I wish I had a crystal ball, you know, to tell you where I'm going to be, but I don't know. Let's say a few years from now, how much of your day do you want to be with the end product? And let's say the end product now is actually working with someone who is addicted. Let's just say that for sake of discussion versus the background of talking to your army of social workers and so on that are going to go out into the field. Do you have a need or a desire to do one or the other more? I really enjoy um, every once in a while being able to engage with the final end consumer of whatever it is I'm going to be selling, whether it's the patient in the pharmacy or somebody in a mental health field, if I'm, uh, you know, engaging with that client. But I, I understand how time-consuming it can be to care for each and every individual right. patient or client. And so I felt like um, being, you know, kind of, uh, when I had my pharmacy, what I enjoyed more was being able to see my staff kind of as an extension of myself servicing more people than I could ever do single-handedly. Okay, so I always see the value of partnering up with, you know, either other partners or, you know, getting more staff to do what it is that you love to do and you love to see do. And I find it just as rewarding 
to see the end result um, as I do kind of helping that each one individual client. I kind of sometimes feel like if I'm doing the field work and, and standing at the counter with the pharmacy, I can't do too much of that because that takes me away from planning and doing things to expand this service, whatever it is that I have, you know? Let's say you think of something and before you know it, you find out that there's a hundred gadas like you that are going to also do this. And then there's 10 more goddess that want to manage these hundred. And then finally, you're at the end. Now you're like four or five levels removed. How far would you like to go back if you had these levels of goddess that you could do? That's a good question. And I, I think I, you know, just like you, you were removed from that. I always did get the customer complaints because I didn't have that many levels. It was the staff pharmacist, the technician, the customer. And so complaints would go through from the customer to the tech, to the pharmacist, then to me. The last three years, and now I've actually downsized because of the tough market. So I'm back. Yes. I'm a, a, a month ago. I'd be doing this and you'd be seeing my black lab coming through the room and stuff on my back wall. So I'm in the pharmacy now in my office at the pharmacy. So I'm back. But I enjoyed having that level that you never had of one more level. Yes, I never had that. And I think I like to be able to understand where the customers, if they do complain, because then you can really identify your weak points you know? So if I can say, well, this person is complaining about this, there must be something that's missing or something that we're not doing that I can fix, you know? So every complaint is because there's something missing. As a single pharmacy, I was too far removed. I was probably a little burned out, but I was too far removed because I do a better, I think our pharmacy potentially becomes better with me here more doing it. So I'm not saying my way was a good way, but it was just a refreshing little break. Everyone loves to walk into the pharmacy and see the owner standing right there, whether or not you're wearing a lab coat or you're just in your sneakers and jeans, and you can um, talk to your customers or your patients, and most of the time they're your neighbors. Everybody just loves that level of engagement with their pharmacist for those people who have the luxury of an independent pharmacist that they know, right. you know, that owns the store. So, and then, you know, sometimes you see them at a baseball game or a basketball game, and then they can tell you what's going on. So when people know you, it's I feel like it's uh, it's great. Five years from now, what would you like to be doing? What's a typical day look like in five years business-wise? It would start the night before. I would go to bed like 9, 9.30, get up at like maybe 5 o'clock, work out, have a nice breakfast, um, you know, be able to have some centered, centering time right in the morning, mm -hmm. um, have quality time with my family, and then go off to my job at a decent time, not opening a pharmacy at 7 a.m., uh, or maybe going into an office at like 8.30 or 9. How many people would you like to see in that office? Like nobody because you're grumpy or like 10 people because you want to say hi or like hundreds of people? I'm a very social person. I'm like a social butterfly. So I would love to walk in the office and have it bustling with activity. And so I don't want to be the first one in. How many people? I'm very comfortable. Like uh, if I were the manager or owner or whatever it was, I'd like to see uh, 20 or more people, you know. Because if you get enough, that's almost better because there's so many people that you can choose to interact, but you don't really have to. It's not like three people there. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. So yeah, I'd love to be able to interact with people. 
um, and know that we're all doing, we're all on the same path. We have this mission of helping people. Sitting at your desk then or sitting in meetings or what? I hate sitting in long meetings. Uh, like two hours is definitely too long of a meeting for me, but I, I love to be active and, and going around. I mean, um, because I'm like such a social person, um, I love meeting new people. It just kind of thrills me to meet somebody new and kind of um, pick their brain and see how we can work together. I just totally enjoy that. Would you do that leaving your building or having people come in or a mixture of both? Probably both. I was doing a lot of that when I had my pharmacy. I was doing a lot of going out and meeting people at events and then soliciting business and maybe somebody would come to the pharmacy or I would go to their office or whatever. So I really enjoy that part of the business, you know, going out and seeing new places and new offices, getting new ideas and just all these different things. And then ultimately, you know, within that five years from now, I would just really like to be striving towards a better future for people and having something have had already materialized, like um, a model that we that we are all know that works, that we're developing yeah. and we're improving upon. You know, uh, one of the things when I sold my store, uh, right, after, right before uh, when I sold the store, I was working on a model that would allow pharmacists to you know, provide the same type of um, treatment to pe people who are addicted that I was doing yeah. in my store. But I couldn't recruit enough pharmacies. You know, we tried working with a local chain um, down here in Detroit, um, and it just uh, didn't make financial sense at the time. Um, but I can definitely see, and my time opens up, why couldn't I work with one of these uh, local or national uh, pharmacy groups like the uh, CSPEN, something like that. I'm not saying exactly them, but they're great. Or something like that where you're right. providing value. You're allowing the pharmacist to do something in their store that they were previously not doing um, and educating people on, hey, you know, this is something that you could do. You know, whether, and I kind of always dreamed like maybe I could start something where I help pharmacists learn how to help themselves, you know, in their own store. Uh, you know, and if it's not that, then um, working in a tr in a place that's centered around um, getting either healthcare facilities uh, to be able to treat addiction patients better, or working directly with patients of addiction. But I don't know. Like, if you're say, you know, you're one company and you're you're a brick and mortar place or or a telehealth thing, which yeah. is so popular now, and you're working directly with clients, I think the impact would be smaller than being like a consulting service where you can work with maybe. A, uh, hospitals, like maybe 10 hospitals, and then teach them how to do it. And then can you just imagine how many lives you're going to be touching that way? So that brings a lot of uh, satisfaction. There's a sweet point, and I, probably different for every person of what they think that sweet point is. We were talking about direct connection and versus being layers and layers up. And probably everybody has been given gifts and talents and desires, I guess, to be at, at certain levels. Got to, right now, if you were 18, a high school graduate in the year 2020, path would you go down? Would you go to college? And if you did, what degree would you seek? This is so funny because my son is turning 18 and I'm trying not to push him in any which way because I want him to make his own decision. But being the person that I am uh, and now finally understanding like the type of person that I am and what really brings me joy... I think I would go into business, but I would want to ground myself and my knowledge if I was still 18 with that young brain that could soak everything up. 
I would really want to ground myself with a very solid science um, uh, degree, like maybe engineering or, you know, pharmacy is pretty solid, um, but some, something like that. The thing about pharmacy right now, it's so damn long because, yeah. you know, it used to be you could go to pharmacy back in my dad's day and even my day. You could go five and then... Me too. Yeah, that's what I did. You know, be an accountant or something after that, you know, some master's or something like that. But now it's quite a commitment because I don't know exactly, but it's six, six, seven, eight years now. And it's not real practical to say you're going to do this and then get that secondary degree. But would you say something like get a four-year engineering degree and then get an MBA, something like that? So if I was talking to my kids, and this is what I do kind of tell my kids, um, get a solid degree in something like engineering or or physics or uh, computer yeah. science or something like that. Um, and then get some experience before you go for that MBA. Don't have any official business schooling um, yet. I mean, I wouldn't mind if they took an introductory like accounting class and some business classes. But not like a dual major or a dual anything. You'd wait. Yeah, I wouldn't because I want them to, because you know, as you grow older, I'm not that old yet, Mike, but I concepts are harder to grasp. Like I tried to learn the piano after I sold the pharmacy and oh boy, that was really rough. <laughs> so I want them to really anchor themselves with something, uh, something very difficult because learning that and as you're older is really hard. And you know who really so that sunk in when I heard the lady who was the CEO of Coca-Cola, she said that. And um, I was like, yeah, she's 100% right with that, you know, because I don't want to take credit for that, that idea. But that's what I got that from her, because I tried to learn things as an adult, like if piano, for example, and it was just so hard. So yeah, that's what I would tell my kids right now. And that's what I do tell them. And, and my son does want to do business. He did get into a top 10 business school, but I told him, you know, you have to get another degree that's like a science, like either a computer science or some kind of science degree so that you can use your business knowledge in a way that's kind of unique. There's going to be a million, you know, business graduates and you got to set yourself apart. I've always thought that years ago, I decided not to get a business degree because it's like, I don't want to get out and sell X, yeah. whatever X might be. And no picture X as being something you don't think is very exciting and that don't you don't really have any connection with. But I thought if you could do something like that that you enjoy, whether it's engineering or biology or something, you could even go into, you know, business in that regard. Well, let me tell you something that I learned. Um, after I sold my pharmacy, uh, I talked to um I took that business class at Wharton. Yeah. And I want to tell you they talked, you know, there was all these different modules on uh, negotiating, for example, yeah. and an accounting module all about finances and all that stuff. But the module that we had on uh, leadership was the most valuable one to me because it was taught by this guy who was a former army. Uh, I can't remember what he did in the army. Maybe he was in the Navy. He was extremely disciplined. And uh, when he came and started lecturing us, he told us about uh, knowing thyself know thyself. You know, he said the biggest challenge that he faces when working with CEOs of big companies is that they don't know what they're good at and what they're not good at. They just don't know themselves well enough. And so I took it upon myself to really learn about myself. And I did some um, personality tests to understand 
where do I excel? Yeah, you know, right. And I worked with a coach for some time, uh, just for a very short time to understand. She told me, work on your strengths. Don't work. Don't worry about what you're not that good at. Yeah. But try to really build up your strengths. And the other thing I wanted to mention about getting a business degree, um, when I was at the Michigan, the Michigan Farmers Association, the ACE Convention, a couple years back, um, Gary came up to me and he said, Gary Cadlick, okay, the guy whose grandpa sure. was the original owner of Park Pharmacy, yeah. comes up to me and he says, so you're the lady with the Park Pharmacy in Gross Point. Now, you know, that was my grandpa's store. So he and I eventually got together. Um, and we met a couple times and he told me one of the most valuable things that he did was go get an MBA after he sold his pharmacy. Um, and I was like, really? Like, how did that help you? He said, you know, he went and got, he didn't spend a whole ton of money. He went to like Eastern Michigan or something mm -hmm. and did it at a satellite campus in Rochester or Troy. And he said it just kind of gave him a different, um, insight like we're in this pharmacy world and all we see is pharmacy then he learned some concepts that they use in the automotive world yeah. that could apply to business in the pharmacy world and he said there's so much more out there that we could try and it really served him well because he yeah. ended up you know he was in the hospice world and then he moved over and came back to michigan and uh did some things with diplomat before he retired yeah um, yeah, but I really admired what he said, like learning from other industries. So I, I'm not going to roll that out for myself. I would love to get an MBA or something, you know, to continue my knowledge. I'm a lifelong learner. And that's that kind of explains why I went to like 18 different cities, going to all these different conferences in 2018. Right. Because I love learning new things. Yeah. And, and your podcast is awesome. I'm learning so much from all these different really cool um, people. people that you're yeah. bringing on. I was watching YouTube something or other, but it was talking about creativity and it was saying that being creative has a lot to do with seeing things being used somewhere else and then using it for your benefit i'm always thinking of it as a new song or a new poem or a brand new invention but there was seeing creativity is so much about seeing that this is being done in this industry and it could be being done in, in that industry. Exactly. got a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Mike. It was a pleasure talking with you, and I really enjoy your show. Thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes. Thank you.